For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. One of the formative stories of my childhood, one of the stories I heard most often, is the recounting of an event that happened before I was born. It's the story of my parents' first real fight. And I was at home with my father this week, and I asked him for per- permission to tell this story, so we're okay. I was never told how this fight started, and I was never told how heated exactly it became. I always wondered if it involved any of the knives that were hanging on that strip of magnet over the sink in the kitchen. I always sort of like to imagine my parents circling each other with knives, even though I'm absolutely sure that didn't happen. This story, as I was told it, the story always began at the very end of their fight, having argued to exhaustion about whatever it was they were arguing about. My mother, exasperated and angry, finally demands of my father, why did you marry me anyway? And my father says, it seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) Now, you, you laugh, but that's pretty crushing. And honestly, I don't know if it makes it more or less crushing that it's a movie quote and not even a line that he came up with. It's from the Magnificent Seven. Even in the midst of a knockdown, drag-out fight, that's where my dad's mind went. A movie quote. You really feel for my mom in that moment. Can't he take anything seriously? But you feel for her in another way, too, don't you? She's asking a question that might well be the most common question we ask when we're suffering. She's asking, why? I thought of this story, the story of my parents' first fight, when I saw that one of our readings this morning was from the book of Job. And perhaps there is no story of suffering in the history of human storytelling that asks why as profoundly as the story of Job. And perhaps no story gives what seems like a less satisfactory answer. Although I have to admit that my dad's is up there. It seemed like a good idea at the time is pretty unsatisfactory. Now in our reading from Job that we actually read this morning from Job 19, here Job is not asking why. In this reading, he's actually expressing a great hope despite the suffering that he is undergoing. And that's what I want to spend a second talking about this morning, how we get from great suffering to great hope, and using Job to help us understand. Now, to do that, we have to broaden our scope a little bit. We can't just look at these few verses from Job 19. They're beautiful, but it will take the context of Job's whole story to understand them. 
Here he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see on my side and my eyes shall behold and not another. But how does Job get there? How did he get from my skin has been thus destroyed to in my flesh, I will see God. Now, many of you will be familiar with the broad strokes of Job's story. Job is a righteous man and a prosperous man. And Satan comes to God with what amounts to a challenge. Job, he says, is only so faithful to you and righteous because you've given him so much. I bet that if you took away all his stuff, he'd turn against you. And so the Lord allows Satan to torture Job with the only limit that he cannot take Job's life. And after Job proves faithful, refusing to curse the Lord despite the loss of crops, cattle, and family, Satan attacks even his physical person, covering him with boils. Everything, in fact, other than his life, is taken from Job. And that's the part of the story that everybody knows. And maybe the end in which Job is restored to health and wealth. But all the drama of the story happens in the first three chapters. And he's restored at the very end. For almost 35 chapters in between, we get another part of the story, one significantly less known The story of Job's three friends who come to him and try to help him figure out what's going on. And it's in this failed attempt to understand, to figure out why Job is suffering, that we find the clue to help us understand what Job's story has to say to us about good news for sufferers. Now, Job's friends... There will be a quiz at the end. They're named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I'm not going to say it again. You just have to remember it. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I stood in the mirror and practiced saying those like 25 times this morning. They decide that they know why Job is suffering. They just need to get Job to admit it. They're sure that he must be suffering because of something he did. Surely, they think... There must be some unconfessed sin in Job's life that would lead the Lord to allow such misfortunes to befall him. Job must somehow be reaping what he has sown. And they spend 35 chapters trying to figure out what that thing is, trying to get Job to admit that there's something he's done that has caused this suffering. What did Job do? Why is he suffering? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are like my mom. They want to know why. And the first question that we all ask in suffering, and the first question we ask when we read Job is, why? We think that if we can understand why this thing in our lives is happening to us, we'll be able to get through it. 
We'll be able to endure if we can just know why we're desperate when we suffer to know why. And in Job's case, the book provides us with an answer. God is allowing Satan to test Job's faithfulness. But in the context of the story, Job never gets an answer to the question, why? Do you know what God says to Job when Job does finally get up the gumption to ask why all this is happening to him? Here's what God says. This is from Job chapter 38. So way down at the bottom of the book, I'm just going to read you some highlights from this chapter. This is God responding to Job, who has finally said, why? Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Translation, how dare you? Who do you think you are? How dare you ask me why? I am almighty God. Who are you again? Now here's the point for us in our suffering. The why question. Even though it seems to us to be the most important question. Indeed, the only important question. Even though it seems to be the only way for us to get out of our suffering. It is a question we almost never get the answer to. It's a question that God refuses to answer. Let me suggest to you that the question to ask in suffering is not why. The question to ask in our suffering is who? Who is there in our suffering? Who is suffering with us. And make no mistake, we all suffer. Of course, very few of us suffer like Job, but there may be someone here this morning who hears Job's story and can identify closely. You too have had everything taken away from you. But for those of us who suffer the normal, everyday pains of life, that suffering is no less real. Many of our sufferings are like those of my parents in that kitchen all those years ago. But that suffering is dire. Why did you marry me anyway? Do you really love me? Am I worth anything to you? How did things end up this way? Do I have any value? These are everyday human Sufferings, but they are very real. Let us never hear Job's story and allow it to minimize our sufferings. We all suffer. We all feel the gap between the way things are and the way things ought to be, between the way things are and the way we want them to be. And we are so prone to interpret our suffering in the way that Job's friends 
interpret his. What'd you do? Job's friends are sure. They think that there must be a one-to-one relationship between Job's suffering and some secret sin in his life. You get what you deserve is their mantra. And they spend 35 chapters trying to convince Job that it must be true. It doesn't take nearly so long to convince us. You get what you deserve is our mantra too. Even just subconsciously. And we reflexively believe that if there is hardship in our life, it is because of us. Even if your suffering is clearly and obviously caused by another person, we wonder what it is about us that causes them to act that way. Could we do anything to turn the situation around? What should we be doing to fix it? And it's just as easy to conclude that when we suffer, God must be somehow removed from us. He must be far away in our Suffering. Surely, if he was with us, if he was close to us, we wouldn't be suffering in this way. But Job's friends are wrong. There is no connection. We know from the very beginning of the book, there is no connection between Job's suffering and his sin. You get what you deserve is not at play here. That's karma. Job's friends speak from a perspective of karma, of tit for tat. And Job, without knowledge of Jesus Christ, must simply rely on his faith that God will be faithful. And God, in Job's story, proves himself faithful. And we, with knowledge of Jesus Christ, know how God worked out his faithfulness. God proved himself faithful on the hard wood of the cross. His suffering for ours. So what is good news for sufferers? Is there good news for sufferers? What is the gospel for those of us whose lives are falling apart in ways big or small? Because God never promises us an escape from suffering. In fact, Jesus promises us exactly the opposite. He says, on my account, you will suffer. But that's not all he promises. He also promises that he will be with us. Every step of the way. He is not far from you in your suffering. He'll suffer with you. He did suffer with you. He is suffering with you. The cross is the climactic moment of God for us and with us. With us as we suffer. Now there's more good news. Job's friends thought that you get what you deserve was God's final word. It's not. You get what you deserve is bad news. The worst news. There is good news. Jesus, with his arms stretched out on the cross, cut the tie between sin and punishment forever. That's the gospel. 
That's good news. Now, sin is not met with judgment. Judgment has been meted out once and for all, but on the body of our Savior. Whipped, scourged, beaten, crowned with thorns and crucified. Judgment has been borne by Jesus Christ. And now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have clothed themselves in his blood, shed for sinners. In late 1942, just before he was arrested by the Gestapo in Nazi Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a letter, the last of a series, to the scattered pastors who had attended the underground seminary he had started, a seminary that had been discovered and closed three years earlier. In this letter, he wrote about joy and suffering to a group of men who were suffering deeply and for whom joy was in short supply. A sort of joy exists, wrote Bonhoeffer, that knows nothing at all of the heart's pain, anguish, and dread. It does not last. It can only numb a person for the moment. The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible, irrefutable. It does not deny the anguish when it is there, but finds God in the midst of it. In fact, precisely there. It does not deny grave sin, but finds forgiveness. Precisely in this way, it looks death straight in the eye, but finds life precisely within it. This is how we get from suffering to hope. The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. Here we see that why is not the question. We ask who? Who suffered for us? Who suffered with us? God himself came here. He lived as one of us beginning in the manger. He died as one of us suffering on the cross. Jesus Christ, your Savior and mine, suffered for you. He suffers with you. There is no suffering you endure that he has not endured in his body. The sin of the world bore down on him and he was able to overcome, rising again in glory three days later. Crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. He cut the tie between sin and punishment forever on the cross. The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible, irrefutable. It does not deny the anguish when it is there, but finds God in the midst of it. It looks death straight in the eye and finds life 
precisely within it. Jesus' suffering and his death has given you new life. And so we sufferers with Job can now say, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see on my side. Your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, lives. He is alive. He has seen the gravity of your sin and suffering and has not denied it. He has borne it. He has accomplished forgiveness in this way. He looked death straight in the eye and found life precisely within it. The risen Jesus Christ is on your side and at your side today and forever. Amen.